Hello and welcome to episode number four of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell and today I am chatting with nutrition and well-being expert Pete Smith. Welcome to the Road to Success podcast. As I said, my name is Maddie Lovell and I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much. Today I am chatting with Pete Smith, aka the Coach Smith. He is a nutrition and well-being expert. He is an incredibly smart man, which you are soon to find out. He's a great guy. We had a wonderful chat about why so many people are unhealthy at the moment. We talk about what are some of the problems with the current healthcare system and what are some other options for people as well. We also talk about nutrition and functional medicine for disease prevention and treatment and we also talk about what are some of the daily things you can do to improve your health well-being longevity and performance it's a great episode i really appreciate pete doing it enjoy pete smith thank you so much for joining me pleasure maddie Hey, look, you know I'm a big fan of you. Um, pretty much any of my family or friends um, that are in need of your support, I refer them to you. But if people are listening and, and maybe aren't sure um, what it is you do, can you give us a bit of a Cliff Notes version of of your, um, I guess, your career, your past, and, and what it is that you do now? Okay, well, my career has been probably in three fields. One, education, sport, and health. So uh, I went through the education system. I trained at Target University in, in, in Massey, so uh, in nutrition and physical education. Went through education and ended up as a principal of a school in Wellington, so uh, stayed there for a while and then bolted through a big hole in the fence uh, into the sports field where uh, I was involved with uh, what was then the Hillary Commission and then Sport and Recreation New Zealand as a um, general manager and then CEO. And there are a lot of factors that were determining what I was doing in my career, family was a big part of it. You know, I had three young boys that were, you know, a big part of the decision-making process. And then from there, it sort of evolved into um, health and well-being. So I did, uh, you know, work for the Ministry of Education, no, Ministry of Health, sorry, and um, in some educational roles. And, and so it was quite diverse. But what's happened uh, over the time is that, you know, I kept going around in circles and realising that, you know, eventually that I was getting up in the morning and going to work and not particularly enjoying some of the stuff that I was doing, which helped me gravitate back to the whole area of teaching, coaching, and health and well-being. And so what is it that you actually do now? So uh, I do a lot of uh, consultancy work, uh, a lot of coaching work. So um, I consult and work for uh, and advise for a number of businesses, government agencies, schools, and families and households. So, And it's around health and well-being. So it's around getting them to understand what they need to do to be able to look after themselves, look after their families, look after their employees. And then from there, we run a process whereby uh, we help guide them through that whole process to optimum health and well-being. Optimum health. And so I guess you're a sort of a coach. Yeah, that's, I know you call yourself yeah, a coach as well. Yeah, 100%. So that, that's essentially what we do. We, we, right back in the early days, we, we, you know, we had some you know, very insightful people involved in the process and we put a program together and out it went and we didn't really do much else once the program had gone out. And we realised afterwards that people were failing. And um, when we brought these people back in to ask why, uh, a big part of it was that they needed that ongoing support, you know, so it's all very well having the, the knowledge and information, but, you know, that ongoing support's a big part of that success uh, formula. 
Yeah, that's interesting actually because I, I refer back to obviously I'm in the fitness industry and, and, and what we tend to find is it's not a lack of strategy that people lack. You know, if we said if we took weight loss for example, most people can understand the fundamental context of losing weight, you know, eat less and exercise more. Yet um, so many people struggle it and it's a hundred billion dollar industry worldwide and, and that just tends to be not because of lack of information but because of lack of behaviour change. Well it's almost too much information and that's that's one of the big problems. We're 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 over knowledgeed, you know, and people are looking for a shortcut often and uh, well a quick way of getting success so you know out they go they'll find the information and then go and apply it but you know invariably you know there are and I'll talk about this a bit later on I think you know a, a number of factors that determine weight loss and determine our health and our well-being and you know if you take them in isolation you're you're doomed to fail unfortunately so you know when, when you understand just how to look after yourself and, it, and it's a pretty simple process but it is a system and it's just something that's ongoing so rather than a, have a start and an end there's a bit of a lifestyle shift and some habit changes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure we will get onto it later on. And I guess what I wanted to sort of start with is something that I've heard you say, which is really interesting. You talked about the biggest growth industry in the world being illness. Can you mm. explain that? Yeah, well, it's it's a really interesting theme. And I guess the uh, the best way of starting is that if we, if we looked at growth, when we determine growth, often it's based around profitability. And so, you know, if you look at the illness industry as it exists in the world today, there are just an inordinate number of people relying on illness for their for their livelihoods. And it stems all the way from the obvious ones, from doctors and nurses and surgeons and pharmacists, all the way through the hospitals, PHOs, DHBs, you know, through to dietitians, counsellors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the most telling stats uh, that comes out of this is, is the one around the proliferation of medication use over the years, because if you go back and look around about the year 2000 uh, and you look at the cohort of 40-year-olds, less than 10% of 40-year-olds in New Zealand and worldwide were on medication for a quality of life. Today, almost 20 years later, it's around 47%. So there's a marked jump, you know, in, in the use of medication for health. And people have to understand that the solution to our health issues is, is not necessarily a chemical one. The medication is not health. That's one point we'll make. And then you look at the uh, the 60 population, and back 20 years ago, uh, there were around 43% of that population who required medication for their well-being. Today, it's, it's I think it's sitting around about 79, 80%. So it's quite marked. And so, of course, there have been huge advances uh, in, in medication and the technology, and, and you know people will say to us, as they do, well, people are living longer. But uh, when we go and work with people and work in some of the areas where, you know, people are, are, are ageing, particularly in the, um, the retirement sector, we'll see that, yes, they're living longer, uh, but the quality of life is not necessarily that, that flash. In fact, for some people, they're not actually living longer, they're dying longer. And the medication is allowing them to stay, stay on board, stay on track, you know, for a lot longer through that. Yeah, there are there are obviously some positive benefits of drugs, though, aren't there? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, yeah. We're sort of uh, not discrediting medication at all, but you know, we've known for about 15 or so years that over 80 percent of most of the preventable diseases can be fixed or dealt with without the use of medication, and so. It's critical in some areas, particularly, you know, in chronic situations or in trauma situations. You know, most people in the hospital system right now rely on medication to stay alive, and it's, it's critical. But I think what's happened is that we've just had a, a medicalisation of, of normal life, and by that I mean 
the number of sick people in the world is, is finite. And so pretty much all of those people are now on medication. And so for the pharmaceutical companies to then get growth and to develop, they need to start issuing or distributing medication out to healthy people. And so they're, they're looking at, I guess, situations where there is a health situation. And a classic example would be, um, you know, people with uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Now, you know, most people would accept that, you know, every single week their bowels would change, you know, at least two or three times quite dramatically during the week. But what's happens is that we've medicalised that, you know, so people have come in and said, well, you know, that's wrong. And, um, you know, in order to be able to fix those sort of things, then, you know, we need to put medication into the mix. When in actual fact, you don't. And so, yep, medication is, has a crucial role to play, but in probably over 80% of the situations for illness, uh, it doesn't. Yeah. And... You know, you hear things like we're on the verge of a obesity epidemic and we've got a mental health crisis. You know, is that the case, do you think? Or do we just have a health epidemic? Or is it just the, yeah. the I, don't know, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this word correctly, but the catastrophization of everything? We, I agree with you. We, we don't have an obesity epidemic. We don't have a diabetes epidemic. We have a health epidemic. Because there are seven really key co-factors of health. So, you know, everyone's looking for that silver bullet, looking for that quick fix, but people have to understand that there are seven things that influence our health and well-being. The first is uh, the macronutrients that we eat, which is basically the protein, carbs and fats and the combination of those. There's the micronutrients, which are, you know, the, the vitamins and minerals and, and nutrients that we put into our system. There's the pH, our body's pH. There's gut health, which is the sexy thing that goes on right at the moment. But again, most people, you know, to solve the gut health issues, if they have them, they'll go straight into probiotics. But most people don't understand that some of the probiotics that we're actually having are contributing to health issues and we need prebiotics to be able to get them functioning pretty well. Uh, hormonal health, probably it's one of the areas that I spend most of my time, particularly when we're working with female clients. Hormonal health is a huge issue. Uh, exercise, sleep, rest and recovery, and then uh, stress and then in relationships. So those cofactors are the multidimensional facets of health and well-being. And the really interesting thing is you only have to have one of those things to be out of sync. So for example, if your sleep's not particularly good at a, at a particular time over a period of time, it'll start having health consequences. Uh, whereas you need all seven or eight in sync to have optimum health. Yeah, it's interesting. So are more people unwell or do you think it's just the, uh, are we seeing more of it? Is, it? is there more profitability in it? So where you talked about, you know, it's marketing medication to healthy people, you know, is that sort of how it's happening or is it the same amount of people that are unwell and we're just missing it? Well, I think it's a combination of things, to be honest. You know, we, we are marketing towards healthy people now um, and there are new diseases and illnesses that are proliferating out all the time, you know. So where this is driven from is mainly from the pharmaceutical companies again, you know. So they create new diseases. And I don't know whether you've, you're familiar with the story around Viagra. I am. That's a great story. <laughs> but if you could share it, I would be... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating one. So uh, Pfizer, which was the pharmaceutical company, was looking at uh, producing a um, drug for high blood pressure. And when they started to do all the trials, they realised that uh, it wasn't actually working. In fact, it was the exact opposite. It was actually raising blood pressure and pushing blood out to the uh, the extremities. So in a very short um, story, they, they brought in a marketing team and said, look, you know, we've got this drug. It's not doing what we want. This is what it does. Can you go out there and see if we can find an ailment that we can link this to? If 
we can't find one that's already there. Let's go and create one. And this is where erectile dysfunction came from. And then once we've got that, we'll go out there and market it to tell you know all the world that uh, males particularly <laughs> that they they have this particular issue. And that's exactly what they they did. And so you know here were the males around the world sitting watching TV, watching the advertising coming through, and thinking, oh my god, this is me. I better go to the doctor and get some of this. And bingo, away it goes. So and that happens all the time. You know, it's, they created the illness, they marketed an illness, then supplied the solution. Yeah, that's right. And you know this is happening all the time. You know there are. In terms of autoimmune diseases that we are susceptible to, you know, 20 years ago, they were, you could probably count them on one hand. They weren't actually aware of what they were, but now, you know, there's there's close to 90 of these things, you know. So, yeah, there is a little bit of this disease mongering, if you like. Yeah, well, it's a profitable business, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, that's if right. You look at Viagra. I can imagine. I don't know their uh, their P and L statement must be looking fairly healthy, I'd say. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. But there are other drugs that we that we use that are just you know given out worldwide. You know, for cholesterol and for blood pressure and, and the like. So you know, the interesting thing around our whole health system is that it's very illness based. So. Unfortunately, illness is not a not a sexy term. So you know, this is where wellness has come into the mix, and people within the industry are very focused on health and well-being. But in actual ca- case, you know, our health system is not actually a health system per se. It's a it's an illness treatment system. And so when we talk about medication, me- medication doesn't cure; it treats. And this is where the focus is for us. And and there is a reason for that. There's a commercial reason for that. And the reason is that there is no money in cure. It's as simple as that. The drug companies, the pharmacists and all the others who are involved with medication generate their income from regular treatment. And part of that process is making sure that people uh, pick up the medication and then they live their lifetime using that medication. Yeah, it kind of makes sense really if you look at even a cold, for example. If there was a a pill you took that just instantly cured the cold, then there would be no need for cough medicine and, you know, decongestants and congestions and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's right. And you think about all the millions and millions of dollars and billions of dollars that are spent on research and technology, but we still don't have a cure for the common cold. And there's a reason for that uh, because if we cure the cold, profitability will go down. And it sounds, it sounds a bit cynical, but but the reality is it's what drives the industry. You know, the, the profit margins that sit, you know, within the pharmaceutical industry is huge. And the food industry is a little bit similar as well. You know, there are a lot of, I wouldn't say dodgy, but just eyebrow-raising practices that go on that when you see how they work, see how they work around the research, the things that they start to promote, uh, that there is an agenda behind the promotion, it, it, it's a little bit disturbing. And the public just simply need to understand that you know, the, the reality is if they're looking for improving their health and well-being, that there are choices, there are ways of, of doing this. And they, they don't always have to go on to that medication pathway. Yeah, and that was, I guess, following on to my next question is, is that I guess people have to take responsibility for their own health and well-being. And my question is, how can we do that? It's knowledge, and it's getting the right knowledge. And we've often used the analogy, you know, that a lot of people in the health industry are not actually trained in health. They're trained in medicine, and there's quite a distinct difference. So, you know, if you're praying your car, for example, and you take it off to the panel beater, you're unlikely to ask your panel beater for advice on safe driving. He or she will give you advice. But it's finding the right sort of advice and reliable advice and it needs to be evidence-based science and evidence-based advice and once you start to get an understanding of how, of how that works then you know uh, it becomes pretty straightforward it's not it's not hard uh, Maddie you know that's the thing you just have to get the right guidance and the right advice and as we talked from the outset 
you know, if you can get that ongoing support, because everybody's different in terms of the way they, they respond to different circumstances, food particularly, and if you can get that support, you know, when those changes start occurring, then you can just simply work your way through it. Yeah, I think the problem is maybe too much information. You know, you, you only have to have an internet connection and, uh, and Google and you can pretty much type in anything. Yeah. And um, there's a diet for nearly everything. Yeah, well, the, there are millions and millions of experts out there, you know. <laughs> and, and so if you're looking for an expert in, in weight loss, I think there's about 10 million of them you can go and select from. <laughs> so, you know, the, the awkward thing is and frustrating thing is how do you know what's reliable information? And so there are a number of organisations now that are starting to evolve uh, in our industry, which is really heartening, and people with, with some good expertise. And it's just finding that connect, really. And um, once you've got that connect, then you can, you can start working away from there. Absolutely. And what is the – you've talked about, you know, treating the symptoms of illness. Is there an alternative? Prevention and cure. Where the health industry sits at the moment, it's very much around – Going to your doctor, diagnosing uh, an illness, and from that diagnosis, there will be medication generally, um, not always, but generally issued. The other option is, one, not waiting until you become ill and making the decision to start looking after yourself and all your family. Two, going to the doctor. So often you will come out with a blood test and we, we can then use those blood tests just to give us a bit of a uh, bit of insight as to the areas that require a focus. But rather than doing a, a medicated approach, you can look at a non-medicated approach all the way through. And that would that be a lifestyle changes, nutrition? Is what would that involve? Yeah, for most people, it is. That's the thing. You know, you can't unscramble an egg, and so for some people, a lot of the reasons why the health issues that they have um, at the moment are, are simply through neglect or lack of understanding, and they are just habits that they've taken from their family, out of their family, into their new lives, into their adult lives, and they just follow, you know, over and over and over. That's a big part of the reason why things are are occurring. And is that sort of the, I guess, where you're focusing your energy now is on that sort of, I mean, I don't know if the, the term is correct, but sort of the, the functional medicine? Yep, it is. Uh, that's, that's essentially what we do. So we use nutrition as a basis for health. And so we understand that if you had 10 doctors sitting around the table here, you know, they would, they would go hand on heart that 90% of the people that enter their clinics uh, do so because of lifestyle and what they've eaten and over a period of time, and how their bodies respond, particularly the, the, the digestive system responds to the food that they've been constantly eating. And so when you start to understand how to make some subtle changes around that, you know, there are some, there's some pretty quick changes going on. And you mentioned, you know, weight loss earlier on, and, and again, you know, there's just this proliferation of diets and different options around weight management and weight loss. But the actual truth around this is that you don't actually have to lose weight to be healthy. It's the other way around. So if you become healthy and you start understanding how to look after yourself, your ability to manage your weight within the realms of those eight cofactors of health, then doesn't matter what stage in life, you, you can do it. Yeah, I would agree. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about nutrition out there at the moment? I know we talked a little bit about, you sort of even mentioned before things about um, marketing the way some products are marketed, but you know, are there widely held assumptions that most people would have around something that maybe you could debunk or demyth? Yeah, well, there are, there's a number of them. One uh, is that there is the silver bullet. So you can take a supplement, you can take a pill, you can take a superfood or a piece of technology or a piece of equipment and it's going to solve your issues. And that's a myth. That's an absolute myth because there is no potion or anything that you can deal that will deal with one 
one particular health issue because it's multidimensional. As we talked about from the outset, all of those eight cofactors will in some way influence what's going on. The other is that the body is incredibly adaptive. And so it doesn't matter whether you have the healthiest diet every single day of your life, eventually your metabolism is going to pick up on what you're doing and it'll start to adapt down. So, And therefore the benefits you're getting from that will start to diminish and eventually flatten off. And, you know, it's a classic example of that is if people are dieting and they have a particular food intake and after a period of time they'll start hitting a plateau and then the plateau will then start to become regressive and, you know, the gains will stop. Exercise is exactly the same and you'll know that in your industry. So that, you know, if you go walking every single day, same pace, same time, same effort, then you'll get some initial gains from the start and then bingo, after a period of time you're Diminishing returns kicks in and, and everything falls out. So, you know, that's a big, big part of it. And so in order for uh, to overcome that, there's a concept called organised variation. And so the way you structure your week and, and everything around food and lifestyle and exercise needs to include an element of variation in it. And all it's doing is just tricking your metabolism. And so your metabolism doesn't go into that complacent uh, area where thinks, okay, uh, I know what's going on, I can just turn myself off every single day. Organised variation also requires you to have days that you wouldn't expect to have if you were looking at a, a, at a health profile. Uh, and those days would be at least one day a week. We just go and eat and drink whatever you like, you know, and it will do no harm whatsoever. But the benefits are huge because what it does is it puts your metabolism right up on red alert again and then when you come back in with some of those better health issues, then metabolism is shocked, it responds and away it goes again. Are our metabolisms designed to keep us carrying weight or, you know, you sort of said you've got to surprise it to sort of see continued results. As the metabolism, what's its agenda? Uh, it's to keep us alive. It's this first function. And, you know, in order for us to keep us uh, alive, it allows, I mean, when we, it's a broad concept, the metabolism. So, you know, it influences our sleep, it influences our energy levels, it influences our libido, uh, our body shape, you know, all of these factors. So, you know, the metabolism is relatively easy to manage as long as you just apply a system. And the system is around variation. One of the other big misconceptions is around the type of food that you eat. But, you know, there's a lot of rev uh, evidence now around a concept called time-restricted eating. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it. Is that like intermittent fasting? It is a little bit, but it's not. So in, within a pure time-restricted eating day, it's not so much what you eat, it's when you eat. And so, you know, if you're eating, a lot of the research now will show that if you're eating your food over a period of 12 15 hours, as most people do, you know, they have a typical breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning and then still eating at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. You know, you're talking about a 12, 13, 14 hour day where you are consuming, eating and drinking. And that will, just as a result of that, have a negative consequence on your metabolism and your health. If you can pull your eating of food and drinking of fluids down to 8 to 9 hours a day, irrespective of what you eat and drink, you'll start getting health benefits. Really? So let's say you're doing 8 or 9 hours and let's say your first meal was around, you know, say, half past 10 in the morning uh, and then you're working your way through to, you know, your last meal around 7 o'clock at night. Then you don't eat again until all the way around to, you know, half past 10 in the morning. And so the interesting thing out of that is that you've just introduced a 16, 15, 16 hour fast. And fasting is the body's natural 
way of doing all the repair and maintenance. So it's a critical, critical process for us to be well. You think about it, when you, you get ill, the first thing that happens when we become ill is that we generally go, most people go off their food and so they stop eating. So they uh, there's this involuntary fasting. And the fasting is when the body does the repair system. All right. And so what we tend to do is wait till we're sick and then we fast. But when you introduce fasting and you do it in a managed way, you can get huge health benefits. So you don't have to be starving yourself of all, all you know, your favourite foods and all your treats and all your vices and everything else. But if you do time-restricted eating every single day, the body will adapt and, and it goes. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I've never heard of it. One thing that I am curious about is... People will do stuff that it must frustrate you as a coach that will they will do stuff whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's eating or even smoking, that they know is detrimental to their health, but they continue to do it. Like I don't know, I've got this theory that people will do things if the action and consequences are far removed from each other. So the example of, you know, having a cigarette or, you know, starting smoking now is not going to have any immediate consequences for the person that started smoking. The consequences are going to be in 20 or 30 years when their lungs pack out or their arteries clot or whatever it is. And and that distance between the action and consequences allows people to continue smoking. Whereas if you gave a smoker a cup of poison and said, drink this, you know, you'll die in 15 minutes, they go, absolutely not. You know, but they'll go and have a cigarette knowing it's doing exactly the same, but just there's a distance between the action and the consequence. And, you know, I guess people are willing to do things that have negative consequences as long as those consequences are not immediate. Yeah, that's very true. I think it's the way we're wired, isn't it? If we know we can do something that gives us a pleasure at the moment, then we'll deal with it later on. I've heard a lot of people say, look, I'm smoking now because, you know, by the time I get to my 60s or 70s, I'm pretty sure they'll, they'll have a cure uh, you know, for all the issues that will come through. But unfortunately, you know, that's unlikely. But it applies to other areas as well, you know. And that's why we look at our client base, the nature of our client base, and they're generally people uh, in, their, in their 40s, 50s, 60s and plus, right? But what people don't understand is that cancer, for example, just doesn't start at the age of 50. Uh, or 60. It starts right back when we're in our 20s and 30s. Uh, dementia doesn't just occur when we hit 67 or, or 70. It's something that occurs right back in the very, very, very early days. And there's a, a metabolic process that occurs in our 30s that we're all aware of have been through it. And our ability to metabolise glucose becomes, starts to become quite inefficient. And we know that because we can eat whatever we like in our 20s and we get into our 30s and we ate the same food, we'd see the, see the consequences around you know, our weight and you know, the body shape. But there is a, a far-reaching effect on that because the body's ability to metabolise glucose then has a flow-on effect to all other parts of our uh, body. And because we become less efficient, a classic example is our brain health. Most people up to the age of, you know, the mid-30s or 40s would, would supply their brain with, with fuel from glucose, carbohydrates and sugar. But as we go through the 30s, the ability of, of the glucose to be able to pass the blood-brain barrier and fuel the cells in their brain starts to reduce. And so unlike other parts of the body, we don't get warning signs necessarily. Some people do, you know, they get the sort of the, the headaches and other bits and pieces, but most people don't. And it's not till later on with that constant degeneration that uh, we then start to pick up some of the issues, you know, when we hit in our late 40s and 50s, you know, we become absent-minded and, you know, brain fog starts to kick in and we, just, we become very forgetful and then that then manifests itself into other issues later on. So 
If people understand, uh, can understand that by looking after yourself right from the outset, go and enjoy your twenties, do it, do whatever, whatever you want to do. But you know, when it comes time, take the time to look after your health because uh, if you if you don't make time for wellness in those early days, you're certainly going to have to make time for wellness later on. And you're 100 percent right that everyone's looking for the quick fix, and the truth is there isn't. Yeah. Agreed. And again, I definitely know that from the fitness industry. There's a, if you only have to watch an infomercial for 20 minutes to see the new latest fad, but um, mm. unfortunately, there is no quick fix. It is interesting with regards to people's behavior. And I also think that there's maybe, particularly with regards to nutrition, there's some pro, uh, you look at the availability of food and, and the history of the, the human evolution. You know, you say, you, you think how much the access two different foods has improved even in the last 30 years, you know, in my lifespan, for example, you know, and, and if you went back to my grandparents, you know, like how it was the most meals was meat and three veg, you know, and then you fast forward, you know, 50 years and you only have to walk down one aisle in the supermarket and there is a vastly different array of um, even food categories that didn't exist a decade ago. And I would, maybe you would be the expert on this, but I guess I would suggest that our body hasn't evolved to, deal with some of the things that we're putting in it because the increase of these, I don't know what the new products has been so rapid in the scale of human evolution. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, they're, they're processed foods mainly, you know, and, and it comes back down to our, our nature of doing things quickly and having them on hand. I mean, you only have to go back five years and you, you remember that the world had demonised fats, Right, so fats were the bad guy and, you know, the bulk of our, our diet based on the food pyramid and a lot of the other advice that we, we were given should be largely carbohydrates, protein and uh, and a bit of fats. But then the world evolved and, you know, I remember right back in those days where we were promoting the, the, the fact when we, when we got onto this, promoted the fact that sugar is not really all it's cut out to be and there are some serious health consequences and weight consequences as a result of that. And I remember we got absolutely... Absolutely slammed. Now, sugar and carbohydrates are the bad guy, and we're often asked, "So, well, what is the answer?" Well, the answer is, you know, neither is true. If you eat the right fats and the right situations for some people, you'll get the benefits. If you eat carbohydrates in the right situation and sugar, you will get benefits because we. The best way to describe sugar now is is, is described as a bit of a rabid dog. You know, it's one of those things, particularly around children. You just need to keep watch it, be careful, keep an eye on it, and just be cautious about it. And it, But carbohydrates are still a critical part of our diet. And there's a new concept uh, that's evolved called gentle carbohydrates. And these gentle carbohydrates are what we refer to as prebiotic carbohydrates. So these, food, these are foods that have changed composition as a part of the cooking process. And I'll explain what they are in a moment. And as, as a result of that, when they go into your system, they don't cause a negative health response like an insulin response. They go straight down into your large intestine and start providing the fuel, the fibre for probiotics in your system. So they're prebiotic foods. So a great example uh, would be white rice. And so cooked white rice that's cooled and then re-eaten either cold or reheated is a brilliant prebiotic food. Really? Mm. A baked potato that's baked or pumpkin that's baked, cooled, and then either had cold as a cold salad or reheated slightly, 
is is a perfect prebiotic food. So it goes into your system. It's a fibrous food, goes into your system, and then starts to fuel the good bacteria that you've got in your system. As long as that good bacteria is in your system. So, what about Coomera? Is Coomera good? Yeah, for you? Coomera's I love good. Coomera. Yeah, Coomera's good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, in the right context, yeah. because you see, every single one of us has has what we refer to as a macronutrient profile. So we respond based on our our genetic makeup well to a mix of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And there's a really simple way that people can can do a bit of a a macronutrient test on themselves. One is that if they have food groups high in carbohydrates and they find after about, you know, two hours or an hour or so of eating that they're really, really hungry, you can pretty much bet that their profile is more towards ketones or fats as opposed to carbohydrates. And the other one, and this one's a bit weird, but it's incredibly accurate. If you have the disposition to have cold hands regularly and white ears, okay, yep, cold hands and white ears, then basically uh, it means that your metabolism is in tune with carbohydrates, so you will respond positively to carbohydrates. However, if you have uh, habitually warm hands and red ears, then your body will respond better to a keto-based diet. I have warm hands often. Are my ears red? Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, so so, so you basically it's saying, yeah, I mean, the worst thing you can do is take out all carbohydrates, yeah, right? Um, basically, your metabolism is likely to respond well once it's been adapted and transitioned into a, a diet that is disproportionately higher in fats or ketones than it is in uh, carbohydrates. And if I come back to that example we were talking about before, when your your glucose metabolism starts to become more inefficient the best fuel to go into your system are ketones, fats, because the ability of ketones to go into your system and cross, for example, that blood-brain barrier and start fueling your cells does so without any health issues and will start to restore some of the, the damage that has been done previously. And is that the basis of the, the keto diet, which is so popular at the moment? Uh, yeah, look, it's just it's just one. It's a bit like the paleo, you know, one as well. I mean, there are there are variations of it. It's all very well someone saying, right, I'm going to go on a diet. I've heard about this. I've person down the road or next door to me at work, you know, has had fantastic success. It doesn't mean for one minute that that person is going to have the same success because we are all our own experiments and we, we all have our own profiles. It's just getting that support and guidance to be able to work your way through to find out how best to be able to get your eating plan into your own profile. And I think that's the key. It's something that I don't believe in diets. I don't think that, um, you know, it depends on the goal. You know, if you're trying to have some dramatic change for in a short term, that's probably a diet might be a good option. But there's a really interesting documentary on Netflix. Um, I think the series is called Explained and it's called Why Most Diets Don't Work. And, and pretty much the, the basis of what they did is they took a number of different popular diets from the keto diet to um, Atkins and um, Mediterranean, all these different diets. And they, they studied a huge number of people and then over 12 months. At the end of 12 months, they took all the results and the results, they put them on top of each other and pretty much mirrored, they were exactly the same across the board. And and I guess the, the, the conclusion was that most things can work if you can stick to it, you know, and it's not so much about what you can do for eight to 10 weeks or 12 weeks, whatever the case may be, but it's something that can become part of your lifestyle. All of these popular diets, whether it's Atkins or high-protein, low-carb, um, carnivore, vegans, vegetarians, they all tend to have some benefits um, and work, but only if you can stick to them for a long period of time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a diet implies a beginning and an end, whereas it's not. And so depending on what you're trying to achieve out of it, but you know, your food plan 
is influenced by what you're trying to achieve. You know, so if you have particular health issues, you'll modify your food plan to deal with particular health issues. There's quite a range that fits within there. If you're just looking at losing weight, you know, you can lose weight, but you'll know within your, your industry, a lot of people can lose weight and just be a smaller version of what they were when they were carrying the weight. You know, so the benefit of exercise and the right sort of exercise through that process is really, really critical, which then brings you through the whole issue um, or the issues around exercise and understanding that it's got to be fit for purpose. And again, you'll, you'll know this, that if you're looking at losing weight, the exercise will be different to someone who is looking at uh, becoming healthy or building muscle mass or training for an event, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And I guess that comes around to um, gaining some sort of expert opinion or or advice. And uh, maybe that's a question now is, is how can people learn more about this or if people want to find out about you know a fitness program, generally they go to a gym and they ask a trainer. It's something that is quite um, you know readily understood. But I think that most people don't know what to do if they want to improve other lifestyle factors. You know, you mentioned before that you should be preventative and long-term health is, uh, prevention is the best form of um, treatment. What are some things that people can do or places people can learn more about prevention-based health? It's a hard question. And uh, if you asked me this question in 10 years' time, I'd have a lot more answers for you because there would be a lot more answers available. But at the moment, there aren't many. And so I was looking for reputable organisations that work in this area, that have a, a track record of having success, and to be able to go and find and build a relationship with someone who you, you, know, you can trust pretty much what we do and you know so all of the people that work within our organization and coach in there you know the key part of it is building relationship that you know for most of the people that we deal with it's not a relationship that lasts for five weeks or six weeks it's a relationship that's that goes on for the rest of their lives because we all change as we age things change so you're looking at improving your health now say in the 30s, but improving your health in the 30s is quite different than uh, looking after improving your health in, in your 50s or your 70s. So it's just getting, finding that right advice. So you just have to do your homework and find that guidance and support. I mean, there are a number of nutritionists and dietitians out there, but they will tend to, and, and, I'm, and I'm not doing them a disservice, I, I, I hope, but they will tend to follow a pathway around, you know, the traditional ways that they're trained. So, you know, doing things like, you know, if you've got an allergy or um, an intolerance or something going on, they'll start to eliminate foods. And the, just a point on that, you know, it's, we've so much publicity around this at the moment that, you know, people's health is influenced by their food. So if they have, a, let's say, a, a glucose intolerance or a gluten or a lactose or a dairy intolerance, the thing people have to understand is it's not so much the food itself, it's your system. And how you, how you rationalise that is that if you have uh, an issue with gluten, why is it that you can't eat gluten but I can or 10 other people can? So it's not so much the food, it's our system. And mm-hmm. and everything around your health is restoring or maintaining a healthy system. But in this particular case, it's a whole digestive system so that people understand you know, how the food that goes in and eventually when it comes out, that pathway is pretty much 80% of your health and well-being. What happens along that journey? So rather than just cutting out what's causing the issue, you can look to fix the system in the first place. Yeah, 100%, yeah. 
Yeah, it makes sense. I have this sort of idea that with me personally anyway, the things that sort of govern my lifestyle, the three factors are longevity, performance and enjoyment. I don't know if this is correct or not, but this is something I just use and obviously longevity, living, being alive is my favourite thing to do. You know, I want to live as long as possible and see as much as I can in performance and that's not just um, sort of you know physical, it's performing well as a father or a husband or a son or a brother or whatever it may be and then enjoyment. I think you've got to, you know, if you miss that then you're missing the whole boat and I think maybe for me that's seems to cover most things and that's why I exercise and that's why I eat well and that's why I, you know, all the, the positive things that I, all the, the things that I do in my life that I, that I would consider positive, those are the three factors. And that would that be a, a across the board sort of analogy, do you think? For some people, yes. Yeah. yeah. The fact is that, you know, we live in four environments, every single one of us, and we can make it as complicated as we like, but we live in four environments. So there's our work environment for most people, work or study. There's the home environment. There's our social friends uh, environment, and then there's interests and beliefs. How those four environments interrelate has a big bearing on our success and our happiness and our well-being. And then if we're looking at, you know, the things that uh, really push the boat for for people around their well-being, it's being healthy, it's being happy, it's being secure, and it's being safe. So in in my life and the in the people sort of live in my orbit, it's those four things, being healthy, being happy, being secure, and there's you know, a vast range of definitions of, of security, and being safe are the things that determine well-being for me. I think there's starting to become, organisations are starting to understand the benefits of employees that are healthy and happy. And I know you're doing a lot of work in the corporate environment. And is that something that you're noticing an increase in? Yeah, it's slowly coming through. But, but you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there, Matty. And, you know, like a lot of organisations think by having a water cooler, uh, you know, in the staff room and having health checks on site and bringing, a, you know, someone in to do seminars and, and uh, you know, having resource material available and, you know, uh, that's wellness. Well, it's not. The, you know, the return on investment from, for things like that after about six or so months, you know, even the things like corporate challenges and gym subsidies and equipment subsidies, all those sort of things, the return on investment will be zero. And so, Unless it's our gym, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but what I mean by that is yeah, that they're not going to have measurable returns in productivity and engagement from mm. staff as a result of it. The reality uh, of all of this is that once you understand where wellness sits, because 168 hours in a week, we would spend probably 25 to 30%, most people, and it, it changes, but most people would spend 25 to 30% of their week at work. So where the influence is, is not so much at work, even though it does have a bearing, is outside of that work environment. And, you know, we, we've heard a, a lot from employees that it's an employer's responsibility to look after us, you know, promote our well-being. Well, we don't believe it is. It's it's the individual's responsibility first and foremost. And so the work that we do within a, an occupational wellness environment actually doesn't start in the workplace at all. It starts in the home because you need to get that home right. You need to get those habits and routines going, need to get that knowledge there, need to get people understanding how to look after themselves, and then they can then take that and transfer it into that work environment. And then smart employees has recognised that this is starting to happen and that they then start to create an environment that supports or endorses the new habits and learnings that are going on in the home environment. That's the formula that makes it work. Yeah, and then that encourages productive, high-performing 
employees. Yeah, well, well, it does. It, not not everybody, but it certainly makes a difference. You know, if if you talk to most employer groups, you know, the things that really drive them, uh, and they've got you know two or three really critical things when you're running a business. One's profitability, productivity, and engagement and making sure that their employees are safe and keeping them, you know, highly engaged and developing, right? And so they're quite different from the goals and objectives of an individual because, remember, the the, the four critical goals of, of every individual is health, is happiness, or well, there's no happiness in, in an employer's uh, list of priorities until they've got those four things sorted out, all right? And so once those areas are, are nailed uh, from an employer's perspective, then they can really go after, you know, some of these health and wellbeing areas. And what they're starting to realise now is that by having healthy well employees, then productivity will, will measurably increase, engagement will measurably increase. Because some of the stats around employee health and well-being is really quite alarming because we we know and there's been a number of surveys done as recently as 2016 around about 82% of all employees who turn up to work every day have some health or well-being issue going on wow it's pretty high you know and it may only be minor it may only be that they're on medication for or they have you know seasonal allergies or they have headaches or they get anxiety or you know, all the way through to gut or bowel issues, um, all the way through to some of the more significant illnesses. But it's 80%. And then it goes up to around about 93% from memory if people work night shifts. You know, so it's, it's quite profound. So effectively, you're talking about a workforce prepared and ready and able to be able to work at a high-performance level. Most of the employees struggle to do this, not because they don't want to, uh, because of their health and well-being. But in order to go and increase that comparative or absolute advantage within a work environment, most employers will go and focus on the old chestnuts. You know, they'll look at training, they'll look at bonuses, they'll look at new technology and even you know, inspired wisdom, putting them into the environment. But all of these things won't return a dividend unless your employees turn up to work every day healthy, happy, secure and safe. It's a really interesting point. I like that. And so uh, that flows on to how do we perform at our best? How can we check those four boxes? You know, you've got an interesting concept that you, uh, you told me about about the uh, the ten out of ten day and, and sort of what most people would consider a, a happy day. Do you want to maybe share that? Yeah. So if you had a hundred people in a room and you asked them, you know, how would they describe uh, on a scale of one to ten a really good day? And it's ten being absolutely you know, off the chart with energy levels and health and, you know, can't contain themselves all the way through to one with a feeling like death. 90% of the people would describe a really good day as around a 6 or 7 out of 10. They'd describe a, a poor day as around about 2 or 3 out of 10. And so what that's done, when somebody has a good day and they define that new norm or that, that norm of a good day, it really is 20, 30, 40% Below or suboptimal in terms of their in terms of their health, so you can conclude from that that most people have within them 20, 30, 40 percent of improved wellness, improved health, because most people don't have a clue what a 10 out of 10 feels like. That's the reality, and once you start working your way to every day, 
getting up and feeling eight or nine, and it's all just an arbitrary number, but it's all relative, eight or nine or ten out of ten, some people describe themselves as eleven out of ten, then you really start to understand what health and wellbeing is all about, and that's what life is all about. And so it's it's going back and identifying, you know, okay, so what are the issues that I've got going on, and being honest with yourself, and once, once you've got your head around that, it's looking for solutions and support to be able to work your way through, to be able to deal with them. And the changes... You know, it's important for people to understand that the changes don't need to turn your life upside down. You know, you don't want to be counting, weighing, measuring, keeping logs and all that sort of thing. You don't want to be taking out all your favourite foods or drinks. You don't want to be removing alcohol or, you know, if you like savoury or sweet foods, taking them out of the mix. They must be able to stay there and you should be able to enjoy your lifestyle. But, you know, you only have to get it right for three or four days a week and then you'll start getting benefits. It's an interesting concept. I, I would assume most people can probably relate to that. It's, um, and I guess that's the idea: is how do we, how do we live a ten out of ten day consistently? And I guess that would be. Well, you won't, um, because you, you only have to have a, a rough night's sleep, you know, or the neighbour, or Guy Fawkes, something like that, and you wake up the morning and you're feeling a bit craggy. So, it's it's understanding that when it needs to happen, when you want to get up at that top level, then you can do it, and it's uh, you know that's where you live the bulk of your life. So, it's raising your norm, your top norm, from a six or a seven to an eight or a nine or a ten. You know, I see. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's unrealistic to think you're going to live a ten out of ten, even mm. though you know we like to think we do. Yeah. It doesn't happen. But, you know, by living a, a five, six or a seven, and that's that's where the average sits for most people, it means that you are really suboptimal in terms of your health and well-being and you can improve. And this is starting to flow now over into work environments because, you know, we're, we're starting to see in terms of job applications, promotions, performance reviews, all of those sorts of things, the issue of wellness now is, is coming onto the table because if someone's not meeting the KPIs or, uh, you know, hitting the criteria for what's expected of their job, then you've got to ask the question, why not? And they'll go through all the standard options around, you know, training and education, et cetera, et cetera. But when they've all been ticked off and it's still not happening, there's only one thing that's doing this. Wow, that's really interesting. So what are some, it is different for everyone, there's no magic bullet. What are some of the, maybe a couple of things that generic across the board that most people could maybe implement or do or change that would, you know, help increase their day-to-day number of, of where they, you know, rate their day. Okay. So number one is drink water. So we wake up every morning and we've lost, every single morning of our life, we've lost between a litre to a litre and a half of water uh, through the, the body's repair and maintenance system. So the reason why we wake up and we go to the toilet and the urine is, uh, is a strong uh, yellow colour is because we are on the cusp of dehydration. And so if you don't replace that water over a period of day, and it's not just drinking water from the tap, um, water comes from a lot, a lot of different sources, but you know we should be putting in, in that first you know, first three to four hours of a day, fluid into our system, at least, you know, a litre to a litre and a half. And that makes a huge difference. That's one. Uh, two, you don't have to have breakfast. And so, you know, you'll hear a lot of the authorities out there saying the most important meal of the day is breakfast. Well, it's not necessarily. The most important meal of the day is your first meal of the day. And the first meal of the day will have a huge bearing on your hormonal flow and how how things work. But it doesn't need to be at six o'clock in the morning. It could be at 10 o'clock or it could be at midday. And so from that period on, if you can then look at eating and drinking within an eight to nine hour period, that time restricted eating, and finish eating at the end of the day and drinking within that period, you're immediately, as we've already indicated, going to give yourself, you know, a 
12 to 16 hour fast, which immediately gives you a health benefit. All right, and so from that point on there, you will start to get health benefits. And even for people looking at managing their weight, it's one of those things where uh, just instinctively the body will then start to adjust and weight will come off. And then it's, it's building knowledge around their own profile. So from a macronutrient profile, what are the things that I respond best to in terms of my physiology? And, and it's just learning how to do that. And that's pretty simple to do. Once you've got those basic things going, then it's building a system that you can follow that it fits into your lifestyle, that doesn't turn your life upside down, and then you, you simply go from there. So it needs to be something that you can run, that you do it instinctively. It's just totally innate, and you know there's no big drama about it. You're not having to change your life because of the way that you're living. And that's the key to success. Yeah, I would imagine so. So drink more water, time-restricted eating, and, and finding something that, that works with you and your lifestyle. Well, well under, yeah, and understanding your profile yes. around how does your body respond best to carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And we, we see a lot of people who come in and they go, right, well, I'm taking carbs out, but they're so damn hungry, they start eating a lot of protein. And so you've just got to understand that the body can only process so much protein, and once it puts too much in, then it's going to start to have a negative effect on your health. I mean, it starts to turn, in very simple terms, to glucose. The purpose of taking carbohydrates out but putting protein in, in you're actually defeating the purpose of, of what you're trying to do. So the, you know, the body's got this uh, amazing way of just adjusting all the way through. And then understanding what good fats are, you know. So processed foods, uh, you know, you don't have to have, go through the entire week where, you know, you have eat no processed foods. A day a week where you just, as we said, just go and eat whatever you like. There's no problems with it whatsoever. And the other thing is that if you can get the morning right, first half of the day right, then the second half of the day will generally take care of itself. Yeah, I guess that's the idea is also that there's no there's no recipe for everyone and, and what may have worked for your sister, brother, wife, husband, you know, friend at work is, is, and may have had wonderful results for them is not necessarily going to work for you. That's 100%. In fact, it's unlikely to. That's what people have to understand. That's why, you know, they see success with a particular way of living for a person and they jump on that and go, right, I'm going to go, go and do that. And we get this coming through all the time. A lot of the recommendations uh, people come through on are based on what they've seen with a friend or a family member, et cetera, et cetera. The first thing we tell them is that, well, yes, you might get that success, but you know, we need to get your profile and your information to be able to then make sure that you do by customising things to the way your body responds. Yeah. And that's that's the key of the coaching side of things. That is great. And what is the what is your goal with the work you do? You know, what's that sort of, you know, what's the purpose of, of, of what you do? Uh, for me, um, every single day I get out of bed and make people happy. That's what I do, you know, and that's what pushes my button. My long-term goal, and it may not be within my lifetime, is that as part of a care plan for people, if they go to their doctor, they go to their doctor and um, they go and get a diagnosis and there's a script that they walk out the door with that take off to the pharmacist. But instead of necessarily going straight to the pharmacist, they may then go and get some advice on what are the non-medicated, non-pharmaceutical options that they could follow and then make a decision about that as their care plan as opposed to the standard medication is, is health. That's a big part of it. Getting people going to the doctor and asking the right questions. There's an acronym, I don't know whether you're familiar with it, there's an acronym everyone should ask and everyone should use when they go to the doctor. It's BRAN, B-R-A-N. They go to the doc, get a diagnosis, and the first thing they should ask their doc is, okay, if you're going to put me on this care plan, what are the benefits? That's the B. Uh, the R is what are the risks? 
Uh, the A is what are the alternatives? And this is where they're, at the moment they're pretty short. And I would imagine, you know, over the next few years, they'll start to evolve a little bit more to other options. And then the N is what happens if I do nothing? Your healthcare specialist should be able to go through and explain to you the BRAN for every single care plan option that you have. And so your BHAG, I guess, is to make it so that people are exploring alternatives as well. I mean, I guess you go to the doctor or you'd be pretty disappointed if you walked out with a grocery list. Everyone sort of goes in there with the idea they're going to walk out with a prescription. Yeah, well, I'd love it if they walked out with a grocery list. <laughs> and it's starting to happen. You know, there are some very, very good uh, people in that medical profession who, who are understanding that the whole medical nutrition side of things is, is a key component to what you're doing. And, you know, we're starting to see changes in terms of the use of antibiotics, whereas it was just a, a fait accompli. If, if a child under the age of five went into a doctor, they had an ear infection, you know, they'd end up with an antibiotic. Now, increasingly, the use of antibiotics is starting to be reduced because increasingly we understand, I mean, there's an alarming stat in New Zealand that a five-year-old child, every five-year-old child in New Zealand would have had at least eight rounds of antibiotics by the, the age of five. And so it's understanding that antibiotics, when it goes into your system, yes, it will kill the bacteria, but it'll, it'll pretty much nuke your system. So it'll kill all bacteria. And sometimes, for some people, they don't recover. So, you know, it can take three or four or five years for that uh, gut flora to be restored again. And that has immediately has an impact on your immune health. And then bingo, you've got a, a lifetime where you're living in an illness cycle. And that illness cycle is live your life, get ill, go to your doctor, get medication, deal with the symptoms of your illness, go through the cycle again. Yeah. Whereas a wellness cycle is more about, okay, let's deal with the cause of the illness as opposed to the symptoms of it. And most people will be aware of this, that you know there are three things that happen to us that ultimately make us sick, they age us, and they eventually kill us. And that's oxidation, inflammation, and glycation. So glycation is related back to uh, the body's ability to be able to break down glucose with insulin. And as we age, we've already talked about that, the ability of that to occur becomes less efficient. Oxidation is molecule changes in the presence of oxygen. So best example, of we took an apple and we cut it in half and left it on the bench. After about two hours, it would start to go brown. That's an oxidative process. If you left it there for the entire week, it would be rotten. So that oxidative process same process, the rotting process is going on inside us if we're not having the right balance of nutrients. And inflammation, well, inflammation occurs when we have injury, when we have viruses, bacterial infections, fungal infections, parasites, etc., etc. But generally what happens when, when someone has high inflammation, they'll have a symptom. So a, a good example of high inflammation would be um, autoimmune disease called lupus. And lupus creates pain in, in joints, often away from your, your core. And so what most care plans would focus on would be giving you inflammation medication. For your joints? Yeah, yeah. So they deal with the symptom as opposed to going in there and recognising the body has high levels of uh, inflammation and you need to be able to change some things, exercise levels, sleep levels, diet, be able to deal with the inflammation without the use of medication. Because every time you put medication into your system, I'm coming back to it again, uh, it will compromise at least one other system uh, in your body. Yeah, so it's, it is really important to understand, if you are taking medication, that BRAN. Yeah, yeah. So, so if, if there are, you know, some people just want medication, they're happy to deal with it, and they just want that quick fix. Yeah. 
absolutely fine, you know. And you probably at the moment you're talking well over fifty percent of the population. But increasingly, people are going, okay, I understand the implications of this. I don't want to be on medication all my life. Which, once you're starting to, you know, sort of work through those processes, and that's part of your care plan, that's likely to happen. Then they look at other options. And the other options are using that functional nutrition to be able to, and lifestyle shifts to be able to make some changes. And to be perfectly honest, you know, you can make shifts. You don't have to be in your 20s and 30s or 40s to do this. Our oldest client is 96 years old. And, you know, we have a lot of people in their 70s or 80s who have basically lived their life, pretty pretty good life, and they want to have a quality of life going forward. And, you know, as you said, you, you can't unscramble an egg, but you can improve their quality of life, reduce medication, in some cases take it out, simply by introducing some lifestyle shifts. Absolutely. A, a, a personal story of mine, I was had depression for a number of years and I was on medication for it. And uh, and it wasn't until I was actually overseas, I was in France, and I went and saw a doctor and he said, how long have you been on the medication? And I said, oh, you know, a couple of years now. And he said, right, um, let's get you off it in a French accent. And he got me running. And it was it was literally the introduction of exercising again. And I kept running and kept running and kept running. He said, keep doing that and just reduce it. And it, after several failed attempts, it was the induction of exercising that allowed me to get off the medication. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a great story and, and it's very true and it happens a lot. And so exercise works for some people, but there, you know, you like exercise. There are people who don't. And what, you know, if you stick with a the theme of um, depression, you know, what people don't understand is that when you go on med- medication, basically it's a serotonin inhibitor. So serotonin is the chemical in the system that goes to the brain. It's our happy, happy hormone, if you like, or happy chemical. What people don't understand is that 70 to 80% of the body's serotonin is produced in the gut. So if you have poor gut health, then your serotonin levels will be down. Therefore, your risks around cognitive decline goes up. And so often the solution for many people, and we have a lot of clients like this, that we don't do anything other than just deal with hormonal gut and pH health. And it deals with the problem. And that can affect mental illness. 100%, yeah. yeah. That's a podcast on itself. Holy moly, that's interesting. Hey, how do you define success? As we finish up now with a couple of questions, how do you define? I put into different categories. So, you know, I look at uh, work. Ultimately, success for me in work will be that ability to be able to encourage people to have choice and be able to take some of those choices around their health and their well-being, rather than just going through the traditional model now of, you know, going in doc med and away they go, that illness cycle. Success for me, and we, we talked about this, you know, a little bit from the outset, is just watching people who are living a lifestyle now that they're not happy with change to a lifestyle that they are. And they just, everything changes. Everything in their life changes. And it just, every single day just gets me out of bed. From a personal perspective, I've got a wonderful wife and, and three sons, and it's all around them being happy, them being successful in their own lives and enjoying life. And, you know, that's that's the big part for me. It's For me, it's all about people. It's all about, you know, communication and relationships. And if I can have that health, if I can have that happiness, if I can have that security, that safety, and that is very broad in terms of what it does, then I've been successful. And if people I have some involvement with can share those same things, then that just raises the ante. That's a great answer. I mean, uh, uh, you've changed the way I, like when I first got back from overseas, I got in touch with you, introduced you, and I lost, I think, about 19 kilo by changing um, my, 
I guess, the diet, my intake, and have kept it off for three years now. And then when I was training for the marathon as well, you gave me some advice, and it was like uh, it was like finding another gear when I was running. So I couldn't speak more highly of you. What has your attention at the moment? You know, what lights you up? What's keeping you awake at night? What's the? And it might be it might be nothing to do with this. I'm just curious. It might be uh, it might be an app, or it might be a restaurant, or a wine, or a food, or you know, what is it that's got your attention at the moment? Uh, I think it's the pace of change. You know, that's that's the thing that really staggers me. I love coaching um, with people. And so that's my passion. But my other passion is the research component because there's just the shifts that are taking place, uh, you know, every 12 months. You know, if I look at how we started this seven or eight years ago and where we sit today, the advances in knowledge and science and evidence-based science is just staggering. And I would imagine the more we get going along the line, then, you know, it's just going to keep improving. So it's front-footing that. We've got a researcher down at uh, Canterbury University and, um, you know, I can send her material and she'll go away and come back with a big pile of uh, literature that I've got to work my way through. And, and the ability to be able to bring that back down to something that the lay person can just understand and apply really pushes my button. But once we get onto something, some particular theme, and, you know, we, we had one uh, about two years ago where we, we found a way of removing pathogens out of your system uh, without any medication whatsoever. So the pathogens are negative bacteria, viruses, parasites and fungi. So in a week we can rid the system. You know, I was sitting up doing the research and, you know, all of a sudden you look at your watch and it's two o'clock in the morning, you know, and I just simply didn't want to go to bed. And that's it's a bit of a trap, I yeah. have to say. So getting the balance right around, you know, that research and, and being able to take that and then go and apply it, pragmatically apply it, is the thing that pushes my button. Yeah, and it is changing so quickly as well. If people want to find you, if they want to get in touch, follow more about you, learn more about you, um, maybe even um, to have some inquiry with um, how you may be able to assist them, how can they get in touch? Um, yep, they can uh, simply go into uh, the website, the CoachSmith website. So the CoachSmith. Yes, thecoachsmith.com mm-hmm. and the contact numbers are there. I'm more than happy, you know, you more than happy for people just to give me uh, give me a call. And so there's there's no cost and there's nothing around it. I'd rather, you know, have a 15, 20-minute conversation with, around with someone with no obligation whatsoever, uh, no cost, it's just so that they understand. And then they can make a decision as to whether or not we can provide them with some support or maybe we put them in a direction of someone who requires uh, or can offer some other forms of support. So it's, basically, it's, you know, it's all about well-being for us. And mm. so even though we work in a number of different settings, uh, the reality is it starts back at home. It doesn't matter whether you're a high-performance athlete or someone in the workforce or you're a mum uh, or a new mum looking to start a family, et cetera, et cetera. It all starts at home. And so that family well-being is the focus. So... I'm more than happy to have conversations with people around that and, uh, you know, just give them some advice and guidance around it. Thecoachsmith.com. What do you want to leave everyone with? What's the message, a quote, something that's on your mind that you wish more people knew? If you had to narrow it down to something, what would you what would you want to leave people with? Um, I think people need to understand that there is no quick fix, but it's not also on the other side. There's no long, drawn-out fix. Once you actually get into a lifestyle that allows you just to incrementally improve your well-being and that of your children and just by building knowledge without turning a life upside down, it's incredibly – you've been through some of it. You know, it's incredibly easy to do and it becomes a way of life. Right, and and that's the key. So, don't be sidetracked by you know all the gizmos that, that come out and um, you know sort of promise you this, that, and the other thing. When in actual fact, there is no simple way of doing it. 
that there was, then everyone would be doing it. Absolutely. You know, everyone would have lost weight. Everyone would be healthy and well. So it's, it is a process, and you've got to introduce a system to change some of the systems you've got going on at the moment. So take responsibility for it yourself. Take responsibility for your kids. It's a remarkably easy process and cost-effective process to do. You're a good man. I really appreciate your time, your expertise, as always. TheCoachMyth.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Matty. Pleasure. And there it is. That's the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you also, of course, to Pete for his time today. He's a busy man and I really, really appreciate it. As I said in the podcast, I couldn't speak more highly of his skills and expertise. He has helped me, my family and my friends in a number of different ways. And if you are interested in getting in touch with Pete, I really, really recommend it. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast or got any value out of it, there's two things that you could do for me that I would really appreciate. And one is to simply share the episode with someone you think may enjoy it. And the old second option, the second option, the second way you can show some love. If you enjoyed the podcast, is to simply jump onto iTunes and leave a rating. It would mean the world for me. It already does the fact that you listen to the episode and in fact that you are still listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Bye.